Welcome to Once Upon a Conversation, where we get personal and we get practical on how to have the important conversations in our lives. I'm Deborah Graham, a conflict resolution specialist and mediator, and I'm your host. Let's get started and let's get talking. Welcome, Marianne, to Once Upon a Conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Deborah. I'm looking forward to our chat. And for my guests, I'll just introduce you as probably the most passionate person I know about mediation. So I will give you that title. And you wear many hats, one of which is the Executive Director of the Ontario Association of Family Mediators. And you have your own mediation practice and you are conference organizer and you have a million hats you wear. And I'm looking forward to chatting about some of them. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Deborah. So, Marianne, I know you and I don't know you. So I feel like I know you and we our paths cross often, but I don't know a lot about you. So I wondered if you could share with me and my listeners a little bit about your journey to mediation. How did you end up becoming a mediator? That's a really good question. So actually my first pathway, I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist. That was what I went to undergrad for. I was taking time to do, get some work experience and life experience as I was fairly young. Like we all are when we come out of undergrad and I went into social services and there I met a client who told me about mediation and she wanted to, you know, she, we were talking about what she wanted to do, what she was thinking of herself for the future. She had to sort of reinvent herself. And she actually told me that she wanted to be a mediator. And I was like, Oh, tell me more. And then as she was telling me more, I felt like fireworks were going off. And I thought, Oh my goodness, I want to do that. Like, I love the idea of helping people to um, be their own problem solvers and to have this sort of approach to life that that they had capacity and that there was this alternative to what I had always thought, uh, you know, especially for separation and divorce of litigation and court and, and um, a lengthy process. So that's how I was exposed and then I went about, uh, you know, I went to U of T for dispute resolution. Then I went to Barbara Lando's courses in family mediation and sort of, I, you know, I bypassed the whole marriage and family therapy piece and went into uh, family mediation. In your family of origin, your background story, mm-hmm. did you come from a family where um, conversations and conflict resolution and talking about sensitive, vulnerable, tough stuff came really naturally in your family? Or did you come from a family where the sort of resources of the family to engage in those conversations was a little less and they were avoided? You know, it's hard. It's it's weird. When I think back to my family, it's it was myself, my older brother who since passed away, and my mom and my dad. And we were, my parents um, immigrated to uh, Canada from Scotland in 1962, I believe. And so it was just us. There was no one else, uh, you know, large extended family back in Scotland on both parents' side, but it was just us. And to a large extent, it felt like just my brother and I, my dad worked a lot. My mom was, you know, also started a business and was very, very busy. So it was like the conversations we had that were difficult were maybe just my brother and I's conversations, working out how we were going to navigate through life. And my parents were sort of 
I don't know. I mean, they were loving and kind and we had lots of fun. It just seems like we were sort of on our own in a lot of ways for those big pieces. And, you know, they weren't terribly, I want to say interested, but are available to sort of make, help us make big decisions or, you know, like homework or school or friends or any life changes were sort of my brother and I were kind of navigating. It makes me wonder if that's why you gravitated to being so passionate about helping people problem solve for themselves, that you didn't have sort of a top down someone telling you what to do and yeah. how to fix things that you and your and your peer, your sibling figured yeah. that out together. Gosh, that's, that's a really neat observation. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But I think from, I think you could be dead right. I've always been so interested in people. And I remember from a very young age, like wondering, like, why did you choose, you know, to live in that house on that street? What, what made you choose to drive that car? And what is, I've always been, I'll say it as a negative word, nosy, but I, I'd like to put a positive spin and say, I'm curious. And I, I am desperately curious about what makes people tick. And I think that is, you know, wherever it came from, it's been really useful for me to have that passion. Well, I see and feel that from you and your reputation is one of that passionate curiosity, right? You're just determined to go beneath the surface and understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, when you, when you have any conversations with people, it's like you, there's so many things left unsaid often because you're like, you know, when you're not in the mediator role, you might not ask those same questions in that way. And then, but when you're in the mediator role, you're given permission and almost it's your job to sort of go underneath the surface. I think maybe that's why I like it so much because it's like, you you can kind of sensitively and kindly go underneath to their level of comfort, of course, but really just think about asking those questions where maybe in real life with my friends and family, I might not ask. And in mediation, you have to ask because it helps. It helps to help them uncover what they need to in the next step. So Marianne, I love that. And it got me thinking how you're right. Like in our, in our role as mediators, we can ask the questions and hold space and help people go to a place that is deeper and more fascinating almost than when you don't have anyone in that role where you're just having conversations with the people in your life we miss a lot of opportunities to go that deep it's true I think and I do think that's why I like it so much I think that and because it's almost like your responsibility to do that and and if you can unpack a reason why someone's thinking some way or you know, maybe they've got a thought that's not quite right that the other person is assuming is happening for that person and really uncover. I love insight mediation. I know you do too. Um, So I really do like sort of finding the threats to cares and to really thinking about that in terms of my own conversations, that's often in my mind, like when I get triggered about something. And so it's easier for me to do that job and think about, okay, what's actually happening? Um, It's quite fascinating to think of for yourself and and your clients. Can you just explain in a couple minutes what threats to care means for my listeners? Sure. So really it's something where you're you you've got a reaction. Try to think of an example where something that you know maybe say something that your relationship with your child 
and somebody comes and says, you know, you have to do this, this, and this, because, you know, this is the right thing to do. And, and they need additional discipline or they need additional, um, you need to be harder on them for this piece. And if you really care so deeply about your relationship and, and there's a, a, a risk that that conversation that they're asking you to have could threaten your relationship, then you're going to throw on a defensive stance, right? You're going to be like, I don't want to do that. And you're, you're dumb for thinking I should do that or something like just not listening to what the information is. And so whenever I feel that in myself, like rising up, I, I do have the now ability through like hearing about insight mediation to think, okay, what am I, what's really bugging me about this? And I can say actually like that skill has brought me so much peace because it helps you have better conversations all around all around because you are not reacting. You're thinking about, and and then thinking about communicating. How do I tell this person, you know, if you're asking me to do that, I'm I'm really worried that it's going to affect my relationship with this person in this way. And then they can understand instead of me just saying, you know, you're dismissing why you're asking me to do something that could be a a reasonable request. You know, it's interesting because I've used this little superpower in conversations where, you know, you know, when you, you'll get into a dialogue with someone and it's all just negative. So it's all just like, this is awful. I hate this. It's yeah. you, you know, you're, you're, you've let me down in the following ways. Um, and this could be a client or, or myself with a, a friend. And I think that, you know, when you ask a person the question of, you know, if I, if I were to do better, or if I could write something that would show that I, that I did care about this, this, and this, or what would you want to see from me or written by me that would really help you feel better about our relationship? And that one question is uh, kind of, I think it's quite magical because it stops that negative feedback loop that we often get into when it's just similar to insight mediation, the attack, defend, but it's complain, complain. And, and that those are never great conversations for either person or any of the people in that sort of room, right? It's not a good, good that, that's a game changer question. This is a bit of the magic trick is that you don't work so hard in conversations to be the problem solver. You enlist the people you're talking to, to tell you what it is that they, that they really want. And then they feel heard. And then you can talk and things really kind of roll out nicely from there. I, I find but don't tell my kids because I do this to them all the time. <laughs> you know, when we were uh, teaching mediation, the course that you came and spoke at, yeah. you know, we always teach the fight, flight, or freeze. And then we added the fight, flight, uh-huh. freeze, or fawn. Right. And then we added fight, flight, freeze, fawn, or fix. And we are in sort of panic mode. Many of us go to fix-it mode in our personal or professional lives. So it's it's hard to hold back from fix-it mode. It really, it really is. And I think that that's something, like I'm 54 now. And I think that, like I look back when I first started in 2005, and I think I wasn't the same person as, as I am now. And I think that I've really learned to step back. I started out with the altruism of thinking oh, I'm helping them empower their decisions, but I think that it's probably only in the last 10 years where I've really followed the philosophy of don't work too hard, which sounds crass, but it's just, if you're pedaling your bike really, really quickly, you know, you're just, you know, giving a, a ride that 
that your clients might not want to go on. So let them pedal the bike and, and sit back and help maybe steer the direction of the wheels, but don't do more than that. Well, it's kind of, I think of it as working hard in a different way, instead of working hard and juggling a thousand balls and getting them all the balls sorted out. It's working hard Mm -hmm. to figure out what balls are in the air. Why are they in the air? Why is that person tossing that one? Why? Like you're working hard internally more than externally, I think. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. What kinds of conversations do you in your life find the most, the most difficult or the most, the one that gets you more nervous to either initiate or gets you anxious when you're actually in the conversation? I think it's those things where I feel like people would feel feel let down by me. Mm -hmm. Definitely a people pleaser. So where I can't meet all their needs where maybe my husband, who's been my partner for 34 years and really my has, we've grown up together. We've been married since we were 20. So I think that his feelings and his thoughts aren't always totally aligned with mine. And when I have to make a joint partner decision and share that with someone else in my family, those kind of conversations are harder because it's not all me. And I don't want to sort of sort of throw him under the bus to say this was his idea because I do believe in sort of a joint partnership. So it's, it's hard when you just have a difference and you know, in our marriage, we defer to the person who feels the strongest about an issue. So, you know, if that's me, I, that's what we go with. If it's him, that's what we go with. And it seems to work. It's, but those are the ones where it's like, oh no, we let, we let someone down because it's, you know, not really what I wanted to do, but you know, it's, it's going to happen that way because I respect my partner. What well, sounds like you prioritize that home-based relationship and are willing to go with the uncomfortable feelings of letting other people down to prioritize the mm-hmm. joint venture partnership that you have. Yeah. With your spouse. yeah. Yeah. And I think in our field, we see so much of what happens when people don't do that, that, you know, it's, you are really risking, you know, minimizing someone's feelings and risking your own relationship. If you take up an approach that's more um, unilateral than a partnership. Is there a conversation that you either regret not having or that you're grateful you did have? Well, there's so many. I think, you know, when you ask that question, the first person that pops into mind is my brother, who he passed away at the age of 51 from a bout of bacterial meningitis. We didn't know he was sick. I was at an AFCC dinner listening to Phil Epstein, who's now since passed as well, accepting an award. And I was texting my brother because we were at a fancy club and I was like, this place is cool. And he wasn't feeling well. And I don't regret anything about our relationship and the conversations that we had because we were very, very close. And um, I saw him the Sunday before he died and I remember thinking that day, he looked so good, you know, like sometimes, you know, people just look kind of like, he just looked great. And he he always dropped by that's, he had just dropped by our house. So that was, he had just dropped by and I'm like, you look really good, Steve, you look great. And I said, can I hug you? And he said, oh yeah, you can hug me. And, and so we hugged and 
So I, I'm really grateful for all of those conversations. I don't think it was any different than any of the conversations I had with my brother. But the one thing or and the one thing I wish is that that my brother and I had talked more about if we if we died early because we we had a plan to like live. We had bought property together, my brother and uh, my husband and I, and we were all going to build houses on the property and we were going to take care of each other. And we always laughed because my dad died of Alzheimer's at, at age 75 after two horrible cancers before that. And my grandmother died of Alzheimer's. So we kind of thought we would maybe die of Alzheimer's or, you know, we just kind of laughed and joked about that. Who would, we said, oh, your husband would take care of both of you. Yeah, that's what we said. (laughs) Yeah. So we were like, oh, that's what we talked about. And I, I regret talking, I regret not talking about like, what if one of us dies tomorrow? And I wish he knew how much we loved him after he died just as much as when he did was here with us. And I have no regrets thinking he didn't know how special he was. He was like, he was loved and he knew it and by our whole family. And I think that the one thing I regret not talking about is just, we've kept him alive in our, it'll be five years in October. And he died 17 months after my dad died. And so it was, it was this period of trauma and we've managed to keep him alive in, in ways that I couldn't have imagined. Like he's even in my husband and I's conversations, it's like, what would Steve say? What would, what would Steve say? And he's just with us. And my children have new partners and they, I feel like they know my brother because we always have him in the room. And I wish that I could have told him it's okay if something happens to one of us, cause I'm still going to love you and you're still going to be part of my life. And I think that I wish I had knew known that that was how it is when people pass and I wish I could have told him how safe he would be, even if he couldn't be here to talk, that he would always be loved. Yeah. Wow, Marianne, that is one yeah. of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. It, it's true, though, isn't it? Like, that's how what we do. And I feel like with Pat, like death now, that it's actually just a part of our lives. And, and we do need to acknowledge that it's not. I mean, it's a tragedy when someone passes away early and it's a, a huge loss when someone has had a full long life it, it, and it's part of our lives and we keep people in our lives and how, what a beautiful thing that we can, you know, like. What a beautiful yeah. thing that we can. And it makes me think of the, you know, death ends a life, not a relationship. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But to think that you would want to have that conversation would wanted to have had that conversation with him or potentially I'm thinking of people in my life or that I would want to have that conversation with to, to say, I I'm going to continue to honor you and include you in my life forever. My love for you will never dissipate. Yeah. I, and I, I think that that's what his passing has given me is that ability to to talk. And now I talk to my kids about that. My husband, probably more about just like, you know, and I think that's almost dealing with our immortality, like talking about we're here for a short time and the people around you, you know, if you've loved them, they'll continue to love you. What more beautiful gift is there to, in your life to give that person to say, I'm always going to, I'm always going to keep you on my mind. You're always going to be here. doesn't matter 
if you go and it's okay if you go, you know, it's, you know, I, I felt like for my brother that he would be mad that he had got taken like that. You know, he, that he, he missed the Raptors missing the world series that year, <laughs> love the Raptors cleaned out his house and he was single. And, and obviously that's why no one knew he was so sick. And so he lived alone and we went and my, my children and my husband and I, and my mom uh, all cleaned out his house. And it felt so like, I was just telling him it was okay. And that like, we loved him and we were with each piece of things we laughed or, or we cried. And it was such a, it was such an, such a wonderful experience. And I kind of wish he was there to see like, oh yeah, like, like we take care of you. There's, you know, no, he was a bit of a messy guy and nobody judged him. We just loved him through all of that. And I wish, and I wish he knew that it wasn't a bother and cause he never wanted to burden anyone. He was quite, you know, humble that way. And so it was nice. Anyway, his, his, he's left a big hole. He was a great guy. He was, I always say he was taller than me and nicer than me and had a bigger smile. So he was a bigger smile than you as well. Yeah, yeah. He did. He was like, he was amazing. Like, yeah, he was just a good, good person. The idea too, of what many people dread the, you know, the going through someone who's passed their belongings and so many people dread that task and that you were able to approach that with that same joy and optimism that mm-hmm. you bring to everything. You know, when I was thinking about you before this little chat today, I was thinking the words that come to mind when I think of you are um, you know, obviously passion and, but joy, you know, you really do have a light that you bring to everything you do, even, even going through the belongings and messy apartment of your brother's yeah. given. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I think that you make a decision to find joy because there is joy around us. And I think that it's a a choice that we can make even in the worst of times. And I think for me, there was a situation that was the worst of times for me. And I remember, you know, falling asleep and thinking, it's just me here. You know, like I have all this support and love around me, but it's just me on my little pillow And I can choose to go through this life feeling joyful and looking for the best, or I could let this overtake me. And I think that is the point where I, I've probably, I've, I've probably always been optimistic, but I think that's where it came. It's like, oh no, I, and it's actually quite selfish. It's not really for the the betterment of everyone. It's my choosing to be joyful because you know, you, you do get one time around and you don't know when you're leaving. And so to find that joy in every day, I think is, I think it's the best for me. And if others feel good about that, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm happy to spread my joy. Well, I'm thinking that uh, sometimes I think my greatest, I don't know, gift that I bring as a mediator is, you know, bringing some hope into the room. And I remember when Brene Brown spoke at a collaborative conference many, many years ago. And she said that those of us who work with families that are separating and divorcing are people who are capable of sitting in the dark and holding a light. Yeah, And I feel like your experience and how you've chosen to live it Mm -hmm. Uh, is part of what you bring to your work is that 
the people who are with you can have, they're at crossroads, right? I always see, and right. we, we so don't want people to head down to, you know, a life of a sort of depression and victimhood yeah. and, and regret. And we want them to choose a more meaningful, fulfilling, possibly joyful life. And yeah. you live that example. And I'm sure that you bring that to every family you work with. I hope so. I, I hope so. That's probably the less, less selfish part of that finding joy is sharing it. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think we do bring this sense of optimism and hope and, you know, that, that just because their relationship is ending, like, you know, I don't see that as a failure. I don't see that as, you know, a, a, a particularly tragic or sad story. The circumstances could be, I just think that, you know, it's a change. And especially when there's a family involved where you've got to talk about, you know, all of the ways which they're going to stay a family and co-parent and that sort of thing. So I think it's, you know, to put that, I guess it's a positive spin, but really like life, you know, doesn't have a beginning, middle and end that ends with all of our relationships. You know, if it did, you know, we'd, we have collapsed in grade <laughs> one when our best friend left us, you know, so it there's there's seasons and i think that uh, some marriages have a season marianne i want to thank you for today's conversation it was really um i think a gift to me and certainly to anyone listening hopeful to that anything i've said can help so thanks deborah